Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. Today's hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. This week, we are thrilled to take you, our audience, on an entirely new adventure. We are about to embark on a journey into underwater, open ocean photography with the very successful photographer and filmmaker, Jorge Hauser, who is based out of Mexico and charters out of San Diego. Jorge, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Jorge is a managing partner and CEO of the Pelagic Fleet that charters out of San Diego. He's an award-winning documentary producer, and his show, you can see, um, was on Netflix, and we'll have put a link on the show notes at wildandexposed.com. It was called Mexico Pelagico and won multiple awards. He is an ambassador for Discovery, Nauticam, the Outdoor Journal, and is a TEDx speaker. It's an impressive list, and I'm looking forward. I'm just getting to know Jorge online and, and checking out his website and his professional history. There are definitely a lot of stories under the surface of this one, so I'm looking forward to hearing what Jorge's been up to and, and some of those behind the scenes. Well, I want to start with the broken toe. <laughs> the broken toe is where the story starts isn't it how did you get to the missing toe <laughs> is it missing or is it broken was it's it broken missing. Or, it's missing well it's, missing. It's, it's reading it was all online my friend and i found it on there and that's how you became passionate about the sea so i want to hear where it started ah well no it started Way before that, first of all, I grew up in Mexico City, right? So Mexico City is over 6,000 feet above sea level and surrounded by mountains. If you like the ocean, there's probably, it's probably one of the worst places or to, to grow up in. It's, it's Mexico City. Uh, but anyway, I always uh, liked the ocean. I always uh, felt this a deep attraction towards uh, everything wildlife. And my grandfather used to have a sport fishing business. So what he would do, it was all these sport fishing taxidermy, and he would sponsor some major tournaments in Puerto Vallarta and Manzanillo and stuff like that. So I grew up surrounded by all of it. I was probably one of the few uh, five-year-old kids that knew what, what a striped marlin was and what it looked like. And I really liked going with him to the tournaments and getting on the boat. I wasn't a lot into sport fishing, but I really, I knew all the species by heart and I just loved being in the, in the open ocean. Let's, let's go back to the, to the toe. I was working on TV and advertising. I really wanted to do something that had to do with uh, wildlife. And I was going to go to Namibia in Africa to train as a game ranger, which is a fancy way of saying safari guide, right? I was just about to do that, and I got into a motocross accident. I smashed really hard against a tree, and then that metal thing you put your foot on went through the, went through the boot and came out of, uh, on, on the, off top of it, and I lost my big toe. So I spent six months in the hospital. During this time, a friend of mine that would come and visit me every day at the hospital, he was telling me about this TV, this Animal Planet TV show 
where they were looking for the new wildlife documentary filmmaker for Animal Planet. And he was like, this is everything you love, man, because it's filmmaking and it's wildlife and it's in Africa and they do challenges every week. He would tell me every day about this thing and, and he would always say like, Jorge, you should be there. Six months later, I'm starting to walk again and he calls me one day at seven in the morning and says, hey, there, you know this show I always told you about? They're receiving applications for the second season. You should be in on it. So sat down, uh, fill out all the paperwork, did the video and send out everything. And turns out that out of 35,000 people, they picked four of us, including myself, to go to this game reserve in South Africa called Shamwari. And we, we lived there for two months. And the winner of the whole thing was going to have uh, their short documentary broadcasted uh, worldwide in Animal Planet, right? Uh, so I end up winning the thing. And at this point, I, I'm, uh, I'm seeing myself as uh, the new hotshot wildlife documentary. I could imagine myself living somewhere in Botswana, working for the BBC. But I was a 22-year-old, like, arrogant kid. And nobody from the show or nobody that had anything to do with it really wanted to work with me because I was a pain in the ass. I've been <laughs> so there I, myself. I was back in Mexico City doing uh, advertising and working, doing a lot of work for uh, pharmaceutical companies. Then I started my own production company. I was doing really well. I started scuba diving just before the, 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 the dirt bike accident. And I started doing it over again and I loved it. And then I saw my first uh, shark in Belize in 2007. And it was an amazing experience and I really wanted to, to get more of that. So I started looking out for, for more shark interactions. And while doing this, I got across some uh, friends of friends and what they were doing, they were starting, they were just starting this thing called Pelagic Life, which at the beginning, at the early stages, it was pretty much a group of friends uh, getting together to go out. They were all from Mexico City, and it was a group of friends uh, getting out to uh, fishing towns in the middle of nowhere, going out to the open ocean with the fishermen, with the local fishermen, and try to and document what they found. And I loved it because it was some hardcore exploration that I think a lot of people stopped, like everybody stopped doing that a long time ago. Like you have the sardine run in South Africa and you can go see the leopard seals in Antarctica. And, but everything's just, everything's already been discovered. There are two operators to do this everywhere. And what these guys were doing were, was just getting, going out there and trying to read the water temperatures and the chlorophyll and the currents, and then learning from the fishermen who are the people actually out there. And they, we started documenting some very interesting stuff. This sort of like sardine wrong kind of phenomenon, but off Baja where we would have uh, over 50 sharks, uh, bronze whalers and mahi-mahi and tuna on this feeding frenzy on sardines. And then uh, this, this day we ran across 
this shark fishing operation in the middle of nowhere. So they were independent, independent lines with one hook with bait and, and, they, and they had one of these every half a mile or so. And we, when we ran into this and we saw the first shark, the first live shark in one of these hooks, we actually ran into the, into the shark fishermen. And when they told us how much money they were making out of the dead sharks, which was like probably 20 bucks per shark, we were shocked. And our initial rea reaction was to offer twice as much so we could get in the water and unhook the shark, right? And we always knew this, this wasn't like a real solution to the issue, but that's when the first real project for pelagic life started. It was called the Call of the Shark, and the objective was to unhook 100 live sharks from fishing lines in one year period. We started doing that, and then we realized that we needed to come to come up with a real solution. We, we started looking all around us at diving places and ecotourism and stuff like that, and we realized that when you try to protect a live species, the fir very first thing you have to do is uh, involve the local community make a point that that species is worth more more money alive than dead. And that's when we started to, we, we got the Mexican government on board so we could do this uh, feasibility study during a year and try to develop shark diving in this small little town, fishing town in Baja uh, called uh, San Carlos in Magbay. And that's when the whole Pelagic Life uh, project started to actually take shape it went from being just a group of friends exploring the open ocean into conservation, ocean protection projects. Ecotourism directed that though, right? I mean, the ecotourism brought in the funds to get to make the local shark fishermen realize they could earn more through photography and tours. Is that, is that accurate? No, it was the other way around. We got, we got funds from the Mexican government so we could do a feasibility study over a period of a year right. to be able to realize what species we could find, which time of the year, uh, what was the certainty of actually encountering them. And then with all this information, after that year, then we started putting uh, groups together and bringing them over to McVeigh. And this, by the way, Pelagic Life is a nonprofit. Pelagic Fleet, which is the company that I run now, that came later. So this was Pelagic Life, and we were bringing groups. And the most important thing is that we were in involving the local communities because we really wanted to get the local communities involved so they could see the potential. And eventually, we could just unleash everything and step aside and let them run it. And to us, that was a way of being able to start protecting these places if the local people were actually making money out of it. Uh, this, this, this whole thing started in 2012. And right now, today, Magve is a hotspot for underwater photography, at least during November. Everybody wants to go there to photograph this, the, the, the striped marlin feeding on sardines. And it's a thing now, and it's the, the marlin capital of the world now for underwater photography. 
And this happened over a period of less than 10 years. And, and we don't get, get involved at all anymore, which I think that's what we intended at, at the beginning. And it's a, uh, it's a success for us. After doing this for a while, keeping on exploring and discovering new phenomenons and places and stuff like this, that's when we realized that we had a story to tell. So by the time that when we made the documentary, we sort of did it backwards. You usually do this production book and a script and a shooting plan. Here we had uh, four years worth of exploration and footage. Then we realized we had a story to tell. So that's when we put the story together, wrote the script, and it became sort of a fill in the blanks kind of thing. And after a year and a half or two years of post-production and filming the stuff we knew we needed, that's when uh, we finished the film and it was a 70-minute uh, documentary feature that ended up winning a bunch of awards, had a theatrical release in, in Mexico nationwide, and then uh, Netflix got the license for VOD and Discovery got the license for uh, cable. And it had a three-year run in, in those two outlets, and it was great. Congratulations. That's quite a story, starting with the motorcycle crash. And, well, I mean, I, I, I even think of, you know, you starting with your grandfather at five years old. That's what I – these guys give me a hard time because I told them I grew up in Wyoming, which is – about the equivalent of growing up in Mexico City, but I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau because that's the only thing that was on, on television, you know, and that all the research that they did and the things that they were able to see, we never could see those things in Wyoming, same as you in Mexico City. So that's a, that's a great story to bring it all the way back around and then start to make an impact on the ecosystem. All of these new places that underwater photographers go to in Mexico. There are a bunch of them that today we know it exists or it exists because a group of friends from Mexico City. Because it was like the Crocs in, in Chinchorro or the Marlin in McVeigh or the Mako Sharks in Cabo. It wasn't even people from the area. So yeah, it's, it's funny. I guess when you're passionate about something, you, you find it in you to get out there and try to do what you love. And Tell us how you progressed from film. I'm assuming everything in Africa was the big megafauna that's over there. Nothing underwater. How did you progress from filming and shooting stuff on the land to then moving underwater? The, the Africa thing was my first and very brief approach to wildlife filmmaking. When I came back, and I started scuba diving a lot, and I, that's what I loved. And then I fell in love with sharks, and I bought my first uh, camera and started shooting. And, and, and then all the exploration was great because we started photographing stuff that, like orcas in Mexico or mako sharks or the marlin or the, cro the American crocodiles underwater, we, we were the first ones to do a bunch of it. So that obviously helped to put us on the map. And it got to a point when I, I was running my production company. I was doing a lot of advertising and we were doing great. But then with Pelagic Life, with the nonprofit, 
the, the snowballs uh, sort of kept growing and growing and becoming into an avalanche. And it got to a point where I had two full-time jobs. The one that paid the bills, that where I was doing uh, uh, TV commercials and corporate videos and working with uh, pharmaceutical companies or Continental Tire or Avon, and I hated it. And then I had another full-time job that I wasn't making any money out of it, and I loved it. But that was your passion. Yeah. That was my passion. And that, that's when I said, I, wanna, I, I really want to be able to make a living out of this. And I started out with a plan because when I, when I went scuba diving, the, the kind of scuba diving that I loved the most was uh, liveaboards, which is the big boats that take you to remote places and you pretty much eat, sleep and dive. And that's all you do on those boats, on those long trips. I wanted to start one of those from scratch. Ever since we started with Pelagic Life, one of our theses was that Mexico has a lot to offer in, in the open ocean. We like to compare it like to the African Serengeti, but underwater, Mexico has it all. Uh, when you're talking about megafauna and pelagic stuff, Mexico is probably one of the best places in the world to go look for those. So to us, being able to photograph a bunch of species in Mexico was something very important. I didn't think about doing it uh, up here in Baja at first because we have two, of, two major scuba diving destinations, which is the Socorro Islands and the Great White Sharks of Guadalupe Island. But it's been going on for a while and they were, there were some serious companies doing it. The permits were restricted. I really didn't feel I was in a position to try to take on the big boys doing the liveaboards in Baja. So I, I really wanted to explore new, new territories and do it in the Caribbean. And when I was talking to a friend that owns a, a dive shop in, the, in Cancun, he was telling me like, yeah, it's, it, it, I like your plan. I like the spots you want to develop and the destinations you want to do on your boat. But if you're interested, I know for a fact that they are selling the Solmar 5. And the Solmar 5 is one of the big boys that I didn't want to pick a fight with. And I told Rodrigo, he was like, okay, it sounds great. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to afford it, but introduce me to, a guy, to the guy I have nothing to lose. And, and it went on for two years. After two years of due diligence and the deal almost falling apart a couple of times. We finally closed the deal. And the very first thing that happens the day after we signed everything, uh, I'm pretty sure you guys saw this uh, video of the great white getting inside of a cage. Yeah. Around like, like two and a half years ago. And it was, it was crazy. It was, it was seen like, by 70 million people all over the world. Well, that happened on my boat. So the very first thing I had to deal with was, uh, after buying the company, was a PR nightmare of a great white shark getting inside of one of our cages. And locally, there was this Chinese guy inside of the cage. He survived, the shark survived, but uh, there was a lot of attention drawn up to that uh, video. That, that's how the diving industry welcomed me. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So I did see that video, but I had no idea that that was the Somar 5. That, yeah. that was your boat. That was insane. And I was I have to admit that I was happy to see the diver come back out of that after the shark was able to escape. And all of a sudden, here's the diver because you didn't really know what was going on down there. Yeah, we, his name is Ming, and we call him uh, Miracle Ming. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good name. You've done quite a bit, obviously, with not just the conservation efforts that you've that you've taken part in, but you've done a lot photographically as well. If you look at your portfolio, there's some amazing images of, you know, anything from whales to from the tooth whales, dolphins to uh, the humpbacks. Um, there's rays, sunfish. What's your favorite species to shoot? You still have that desire to spend time with sharks? Yeah, I love sharks. They never get old. But to me, my my unicorn for a long time was being able to photograph orcas in Mexico. And because a lot of people go to Norway and spend like $10,000 to get in freezing cold water for a short period of light during in, in crappy visibility conditions, trying to get a glimpse of the orcas. Here, the orcas, it wasn't only like better at water temperature and better visibility conditions, but here we are talking about transient, transient orcas, which the ones in Norway, they're resident orcas, which they are like the, the nice teddy bears that live in a family and eat small fish and they're super nice. Whereas the transient orcas are the badass open ocean, full of scars, eating, uh, they eat sharks, they eat seals, they eat whales. They're, they're like... They're like the mean orcas, so it's that. That's also very interesting, and it took me over six years of constantly going out in the open ocean trying to find them. Because that's the thing; they're not resident. They they don't stick to an area. They're moving along all the way from uh, California. They come all the way down to Cabo and get into the Sea of Cortez, and they're moving all the time. So in order to be able to to see them, you need you need you need a lot of persistence, and you need a lot of good luck because you can be looking for them somewhere and they they're like surfacing to breathe a mile away and you won't be able to to see them a mile away. So it's it, it was a big challenge, and when I finally was able to see them, I had one brief encounter in January of 2018, coming back from Socorro on the Solmar. It was super quick. But then in June, it's funny because I was supposed to go to the Socorro Islands. I, I don't get on the boat, on the big boats as often as I would like to, probably once or twice a year. And I was going to go to, it was my one trip of the year to the Socorro Islands. And we had to cancel it because uh, Hurricane Aleta was hitting the islands. And Hurricane Bud was coming up towards Baja, so we had to we had to switch a, a very interesting Socorro Island trip. We changed it over to the Sea of Cortez. I, I knew there had been some or orca sightings in the area, so I started calling up 
uh, all the fishermen I could think of and dive operators in La Paz. And, and they saw the orcas one day before uh, north of La Paz and they were swimming south. So they were coming our way. So very last minute, I decided to contact a Cessna pilot and hire him to do some flybys. Then we have the, the fast boat we use in Cabo for the day trips. I decided to uh, tow it with the Solmar and we went into the Sea of Cortez. And based on, on what everybody told us, we set anchor just south of Cabo Pulmo. And the, the plan was the very next day to go on the small boat, go north, and try to intercept the orcas. And we actually found them, and they were preying on some pelagic stingrays. And that was probably the most incredible underwater encounter I've had in my life. To be able to see the orcas stun the ray with their tails for over an hour, and in the end, they didn't even eat the ray. It became sort of like a showing off kind of moment because they would stop, look at us, make sure we were looking, and they would come in and stung the uh, and stun the ray with the with their tails. And this went on for an hour, and they were actually interacting with us, trying to tell us something or show off or I don't know. It was amazing. And so you guys were free diving with them at that time. Yes. That's amazing. That's incredible. And the, so for our listeners, the Sea of Cortez is between mainland Mexico and the Baja Peninsula, correct? Correct. And so there's a lot of, there's a big seal population, I know, or a sea lion population in there. Is that what brings the, the orcas in? I mean, obviously they were preying on the rays at this time, but is that what brings them up into the Sea of Cortez? I think it's a mobular race because when we see the orcas down here, it's during compact season because I think they, they come to prey on the compact calves. Right. And also during the summer when we have the big schools of mobular rays, the mobular rays are the rays that uh, jump out of the water, like six feet out of the water. Yep. And they move along in huge schools. And the orcas during that time, I think they're preying on the mobular rays. And... What we saw, it wasn't the mobular race. It was, we realized that the pelagic stingrays were actually giving birth on the surface. And at the time they were preying on them, but I think they were there, they were in the area for the mobular race. Yeah, from all the photographs that you see of orca, that is not where you would expect to, to see them. Usually either further south or further north, right? Yeah. And, and, and that's what makes it such a challenge and, and looking for them for over six years. And a couple of my friends had seen them. I was, I think, out of the, of the whole gang over at Pelagic Life. I was the one that, that used to, when I was living back in Mexico City, I was the one that would come to Baja the most. And then that trip that I didn't come, they saw the orcas. And that happened to me several times. And then when I finally got to see them, it tasted so, so good. And also, whenever the, the guys saw them, it was just like the first time that I saw them. It was just a flyby. Uh, so being able to be over an hour in the water with them as they were hunting, that was pretty special. So what do you prefer most? Do you prefer taking stills or do you like doing the video? I prefer taking stills. I've been 
super stubborn about it because if I'm shooting video, I I know I I feel like I'm working and you can, I think I should steals because I'm lazy because when you're shooting <laughs> video you know you have to tell a story and put a lot of work into it and I also like the challenge because in a way I'm being lazy but in a way like when you're shooting video and something interesting is happening in front of you there's uh, you don't have to do anything other than hold the camera steady. When you're shooting steals, you have to get that fraction of a second, you have to get it right. And to be able to make a, like, a nice frame out of a still shot, that's, for me, it's more challenging. And and I just like being able to show the photos and they, they I don't know, it's easier to, to print them and frame them and show it to somebody. And because when you're shooting video, I mean, I, I, my documentary, I've seen it probably 500 times and I know it by heart, but that's because I was involved in the whole process and we did a bunch of special screenings and the editing and all of that. But to be honest, you get to see those things probably once or twice and that's that. Where a photo, that lives longer. That's the way I see it anyway. Tell us what kind of cameras you're using for stills and for video. Uh, Something I want to jump in and just say quickly, because I want to hear the cameras too, but very interesting about your photography is that you don't use strobes. You use natural light at the surface. I found that very interesting. When, when I started doing underwater photography, something that bothered me a lot about, uh, about most of the underwater photography I saw was that obviously when you're underwater, you're limited and you can have a couple of strobes on top of your camera and that's it. So what most of the, what most of divers do is that they have these strobes and then you have nice light on your subject, but then the background either goes dark or you have the correct uh, white balance and color temperature on what you're shooting. But if you have a, co a coral reef behind you or something else behind you, it's gonna look all blue and weird. And since ever since the beginning, I was a lot into pelagic stuff and shooting close to the surface. I, I really wanted to stick to natural light and I never wanted, I've never wanted to buy strobes or anything. And I think that has become sort of my, one of my signatures, maybe that I only use natural light and I, uh, and it's also, a, uh, it's a nice challenge to me, for me to try to, to work with it because I'll, there are a lot of times when I said, ah, if I only had some strobes on, this would look nicer, but that, I don't know. I like the idea of, of making it work with natural sure. light. And I, yeah, I and think I that's think, fantastic. I, I think I, I make it work. I think that's fantastic. I feel the same way when I see images on social media where somebody's hit a bird, a songbird, and you can see it's been hit with a strobe. I'm like, you know, be patient, work the light. That's my preference. So when I saw that, I, I was... I was totally on board. So before I rudely inter interrupted Mike's question, as far as what you're using for camera gear, 
what's what's your go-to? Canon 1DX. Uh, the first one I haven't up, up, uh, upgraded yet, and I use uh, Nordicam. Obviously, it's my favorite housing, and my favorite lens to shoot with. Uh, again, I like to shoot big stuff in the open ocean, and I really like the 14 millimeter from Canon. Um, fixed lens, it's a super wide angle lens, it's not a fisheye. And what I like about it is, in order to get a good photo out of that lens, you really need to get close. So the, the way you move underwater and the free diving skills and being able to read the wildlife plays a major role because it's not like I'm ha I have like a zoom lens where I can just go to 35 or to 50 and, and get the shot. I really need, need, need to get in there and get up close and personal. And that's also uh, another way I like to challenge myself. That's an important carryover for our audience because we talk often about knowing the animal's behavior and just observing behavior at times. And to hear you say that, you know, even underwater, you're getting up close and personal to some apex predators. And so to be able to read their behavior and know when that's going to be safe to do and and know when it isn't, that's very critical. It's, I guess, no different than photographing bears for us. You've got to be able to read that behavior and, and be comfortable with the situation that you're going into and knowing that your behavior is not going to influence them negatively. Exactly. And... It's funny because when I take people out to free dive with sharks, uh, first thing I like to people to know is that sharks are not these uh, killing machines we think that they are, right? They're most of the times they're really shy, and actually the the most important, the, the best defense you can have with a shark especially with a, like a tiger shark or a bull shark or a great white, is making eye contact. As long as you know where the shark is and you let the shark know that you're aware, you're going to be okay. Uh, but also, when you're making eye contact all the time or swimming towards the shark, you're going to end up scaring them away. So one of the things I do when I'm photographing sharks, even great whites, is I try to I, I I try to make myself look like an injured seal. Stop. In order to get them to come to me, so I try to avoid eye contact and I play dead and I'm not moving and I try to turn my backs on the sharks because that's when they're gonna come in closer. Uh, and yeah, you. In order to do this, you have to know first what to do to be safe, and then you can bend the rules and break them and try to get more uh, up close and personal with the with the sharks. We can say we don't recommend people try this. <laughs> you know, Not coming off your couch from Douglas, Wyoming, definitely no, don't want to be jumping right no. into that. <laughs> not not um, not unless you're right beside Jorge. Do not try this. <laughs> you know, and I saw there was an article on you that I found through your website on wired.com and your comment was if your shark photos aren't good enough you're not close enough and on that in that article I found interesting you have the three rules for 
photography to get close enough to sharks. And one of them, the first one you just mentioned, was the eye contact and the importance of that. But, and I don't know if this was written a while ago, whether it's something you're thinking about now, but you also said dive with a second person to watch your back. Yes. Right? Especially, I mean, if you're, if you're diving or free diving with a serious species like a great white, obviously, again, sharks do not see us as food. But in the end, you're going to be in their environment where they are the top predator out there, right? And sharks, like every other predator, they count on the element of surprise. So one of the big safety measures is it has to be at least two of you in the water. So you have like one of the divers is covering like a 180 degree uh, field of vision. And then I, I want to have someone behind me looking at the other 180 degrees, right? And you have to be alert and the shark can come from any direction. And the most dangerous shark is the shark that you cannot see. So yes, that's one of the most eye contact and having a safety diver with you. Those are the most important things. After you've been with the shark a while and you can tell if he's being shy or he's being curious or he's turned off, turn on the, the feeding switch and he's more like being curious in a more inquisitive kind of way, then you, can, then you know how to behave with the shark. And if you're comfortable enough, then you can do what I just mentioned and turn their backs on them and then play dead. And that's, that's how you're going to get them to get uh, uh, close to you. But you, you have to do it right. Definitely have to do it right. And your third rule was, and this, this works for all large animals, was to stay calm and keep your, keep your head about you, right? I mean, like you said, this works with all animals out there. If you behave as food, then you're going to be treated as food. If I think... Like actually safari guides in Africa have this golden rule, which is whatever you do, do not run because you're sending, sending off all the wrong signals. If you're in front of a lion or an elephant that's behaving uh, in an aggressive manner and you turn and you turn around and run, then you, you're just telling them that you're weaker than they are. If you stand your ground, then you're, they're going to think twice before trying anything because if you're standing your ground, that means you're stronger than them. And that's what you want to make them think. And that, this is true with, with every animal. Like, uh, and there are some territorial animals that I've been in the water with, like American crocodiles. And they're super territorial, but the second you do not give in to their threats, then they, they start getting confused and they, they start to accept you. You really need to be aware of this because the second you get nervous or afraid, that's when you can do something that sends out, that, that sends out the wrong signals and then you're going to get yourself into trouble. Right. I think it was, I took it as keeping your head and, and keeping your common sense about you. And even if it became an uncomfortable situation, to handle it calmly, to remove yourself from it rather than a panicking situation because. Physically and mentally, when somebody panics, they lose control and then they lose focus of the situation and aren't observing what's happening around them and are at far greater risk. 
your talk. I I love hearing your stories. Your talk about the crocodiles and stuff and 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 staying confident with them. I have to remind our audience not to do that again. But and there are animals like bison, for instance. If the bison is there, I mean, there's no point. Do not. Do not panic, but do not stand your ground. There are certain animals you don't, but clearly from your experience and what I'm most enthralled with is the shark stuff in the underwater. That's foreign world to me. That's just magical. And and you have this firsthand experience that I'm really enjoying hearing about. And, I, and the crocodile is something too, based on the research what I've read up on you that I was very interested in, the footage that you got and the ecotourism that's been established. Maybe we can, I mean, I'm not, we can talk about sharks the whole podcast because they're awesome. Oh, something else I want to say. There's seven billion people on the planet. If sharks thought of us as food, we'd be food far more often, just like with bears and other predators. For some reason, human beings are bony creatures that don't have a lot of meat and we're chewy. And for whatever reason, they don't look at us that way. And what I, one of the quotes that I saw I, was that more people get killed. Now, get this. Killed by vending machines than sharks each year. How is that possible? But that's, <laughs> that's an awesome a, stat. That, that's a real statistic. And more people get killed by falling off of bed at night than by sharks. And more people get killed by mosquitoes and bees and deer and swines than by sharks. And I always tell people, I mean, if you've been snorkeling somewhere or scuba diving or just swimming off a beach, there's a big possibility that you've been near a shark and you didn't even realize. And the thing about sharks is they're also a lot smarter than what we think. And they have the same five senses we have, but more, more highly developed. They have a better smell, a better eyesight, a better hearing than us. And they have a sixth sense. They have this thing called the Lorenzini ampullae where they can read all the yeah. electromagnetic activity yeah. happening around them. So a shark can actually read your heartbeat from a mile away. And the shark can tell if you're calm or if you're nervous or if you're scared. And, and, and that's uh, very true also. I mean, for a great white shark to eat a person, he would use more energy eating a person than the calories he would get out of eating the same person. And they know it. And when somebody gets killed by a shark, it's often a, a situation of mistaken identity because a surfer uh, from below, you can see the board, the arms, the, the legs, and it, it looks like a, like a turtle or a seal. And then a lot, a lot of people go surfing in places in South Africa and Australia uh, where we know there are great whites in the area and we know there are seals in the area. And people like to go surfing early in the morning, late in the afternoon, which is the two moments of the day the great whites are out there hunting. And even then, even when people are literally disguising their, themselves as food and jumping in in the soup, there are not as many attacks as there should be. And this is, again, because sharks have highly developed senses and there a lot of things, a lot of crappy conditions in the water need to come together for a shark 
to get in all the way and make an exploratory bite. And when they do it and they realize they bite and they realize that it's not a seal, they're just going to let go and leave. Obviously, we're talking about a, a half a ton shark biting your arm. Your arm's going to come off and you're going to bleed to death. And that's, that's when people die from a shark attack. But that whole thing that a shark ate somebody, that doesn't exist. Sharks don't eat people. Uh, there are, well... <laughs> you know, you know the story of the USS Indianapolis in the Second World War, right? Yeah, it was the largest shark attack in history, right? Or yeah, feeding yep. on feeding on humans. Yeah, there's the shark species, the oceanic white tips. Oceanic white tip. They are open ocean sharks. They are nomads. They are opportunistic feeders. They don't have a like a certain diet they feed on, like a great white will eat uh, seals or elephant seals or tuna or a tiger shark will eat uh, turtles or feed on the carcass of a whale. The oceanic white tip is going to go for whatever they find because food's scarce for them. And they are this, I think they're the boldest shark I've been in the water with. And they're not part of the statistic because uh, all the shark attacks that are registered, it's, it's the shark attacks that happen close to shore. And then you have like great whites on the first place, then tiger sharks, then bull sharks. And uh, whenever there's a plane crashing in the open ocean or a boat sinking, there is a good possibility that the oceanic white tips are going to come by. And they're not going to eat people right away, but they're going to swim around for like a day or two until the first one decides to take a bite. And then that it's a completely different story. Uh, again, you have to be floating adrift for over 48 hours in order to be attacked by an oceanic white tip, right? Uh, but that's probably the only shark species that might be dangerous and might seals as food from the beginning. Actually, in some places, they have, <laughs> they, 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 they come to relate the, the smell of uh, oil and diesel with, uh, with food because they know there's a wreck and there's probably people floating around. But again, there, there, there has, you, you have to have a very, very, very bad luck for you to be in that situation it's got to be a bad day and then it's got to get worse huh yeah for sure so one thing that i have to ask you about is that you know i've seen your images of the caiman um and the crocodile what so i saw an episode of it's called tales by light it's a show that canon did and it's on netflix yep. also and one of the photographers, one of the things that he did, and he made it very clear that he wasn't the first person to do this, but he went and dove in the Amazon region with the green anaconda. And I saw some images that you had of the anaconda. Now, is that one of those explorations that you guys did and just no. decided that this was a good idea? 
No, I wish I could take credit for that, but no, the guy, the very first guy that did the green anaconda is uh, a friend of mine, an Israeli guy called Amos Nahum. And he, he's, he's an old uh, sea wolf. He's over 70 years old. He was in the Israeli special forces. He was involved in the uh, Entebbe situation with the plane kidnapping. And he's a very interesting guy. And he's one of the five people that have been in the water with a polar bear. More people have walked on the moon than being in the water with a polar bear. And, and this, that's this the way was, it should was, stay. <laughs> and and, and he, he was actually the first guy to figure out where in Brazil the conditions were right to get in the water with the anaconda. Because a green anaconda is very skittish. And they're usually in places with very low light and very murky water. And what I almost found was this stretch of the Formosa River where the water is crystal clear and the anaconda is in the area. So uh, Amos did it a couple of times. Then Eric Cheng did it for Tales by Light. And we all did it in the same place with the same people. And it's a place that Amos uh, discovered. And, and actually the green anaconda for me was a major uh, disappointment because one of the things that I really like about what I do is the interaction with the animals. And it's always different. I mean, even with great whites, for example, you can have like a really bold, uh, juvenile, very straightforward shark that comes and looks at you and tries to, uh, tries, try, tries to get on your back all the time. And it's very uh, like forward and bold and aggressive. And then you have like the big, shy shark and but there's always a level of interaction even with the crocs and with the crocs it was very interesting because they they are super territorial at first and then when they realize they can kick you out of there they sort of accept you and their behavior changes and they they become they turn into this sort of golden retriever seeking out for attention and they want to come close to you and interact and, and you can you can tell right away that it's not the same aggressive croc you had for the first 10 minutes. This is like somebody that actually is taking pleasure in your presence. And there's always this interaction and they vary with every animal, like the orcas, they were showing off and, and, and trying to show what they could do and how powerful they were. That's my take on it anyway. But with the anaconda, it's the very first time that I actually feel that I'm harassing the wildlife. She didn't, she didn't want to have anything to do with me whatsoever. She would try to swim away and look for the riverbank. And the way to actually photograph the anaconda was it was three of us in the water. And what we would do is shut down any possible escape route for the anaconda so she would have to stay in the middle of the river letting us hang around and take the photos and that was very disappointing because i don't i don't like to be in that position obviously i paid a lot of money to go to brazil and see the anacondas and i really want to get some nice uh, quality time with her in the water and nice photos out of it 
but that's not my style and I don't like like cornering animals and and forcing that interaction and and with the anaconda it was that was the case so it was a big disappointment we have this idea of all these apex predators from what we see in the movies and probably if I tell if we tell anyone green anaconda they're gonna picture this super fast huge snake attacking John Boyd, right? And that's not the case. <laughs> that's not what they are. Yeah, I saw that documentary and he kind of had this he kind of had the same luck. He had a couple good just moments with that snake or or a snake. But that was about it. And I can't say that I've ever had any desire to be in the water with a anaconda. I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a big snake fan, no matter what they are, but I do want to be in the water with the great white. Just, they are the pinnacle. It's the same reason I want to go photograph polar bears. It's just in their environment, they are the pinnacle predator, the apex predator. And it's just something to be able to just spend time with those animals and, and have the respect that you have for them. It doesn't matter the species, really, like you're talking about it. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a shark, a, an orca, or a green anaconda. You want to have that. You have the respect for the animal, but you want to just have those moments that you can remember. So I understand the disappo- disappointment, but that that won't be a trip that I'll ever spend money on. I may come spend some time with you, though. <laughs> well, that's different than what he normally does, right? Out in the pelagic sea, once right. he's in the water... Yeah. It's wide open ocean, and and whatever the subject is can choose to swim away at any point, and you know, and obviously be more effective at moving in the water than a human. So it's a different scenario. So I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. I, the idea of having a bait ball and having the marlin feeding on it and being able to see that and film that, I mean, what a what an amazing opportunity that would be. How on earth? I mean, and you don't have to answer this because maybe it's top secret. How would you ever find a bait ball out in the wide open ocean to know where to locate that? Is, is it a seasonal thing and you just know there's certain water temperatures and season and currents and based on, I guess, fishing history maybe? I don't know. Yeah. First of all, we relied uh, solely on building a relationship with local fishermen and they knew what we were looking for. So whenever you see something like this, call us and then we'll get on a plane and get over there. And that's how it all started. And now we've come to learn about the seasons and the water and how it happens. And now we know that it's almost a certain thing. If you go to Magdalena Bay in Baja, November, December, there's a good possibility you're going to be able to see that. So uh, I don't know if you give me a call in October, I can tell you what the status is and who to go with. And that's when, that that's, again, when we started to letting the local people take over. And now they're actually really, a lot of people want to go see the bait balls and they go with these guys and they're being really successful at it. But yeah, see. it's for the Marlins, I, w- I would say November in Baja. That is somewhere though. That's that's an event that, if I were there, I would definitely want some video of that. 
because it's a it's an amazing just almost nonstop action once once the frenzy gets started you've got the bait ball and it's swarming and then you've got all the the predatory fish and the end birds coming through so it that's an amazing event to to experience i would think absolutely so with with your cannon are you shooting both stills and when you do video are you doing it on this on the same body then yes and I don't really shoot video like very seriously. Okay. Like what I usually do is I get a very short clip of something interesting. Like, um, for example, one of the when the orcas were preying on the stingray, I shot mostly steals, but then I did this one clip where when I got super close to the ray and waited for the for the orca to come by and slap the ray with its tail. And it's just that 30 second clip that actually ended up gaining a lot of traction online. Uh, but it's I usually do it mostly for myself to be able to show people and remember the moment, but I do mostly steals. If I were doing, if I were shooting video professionally, I would go for the 1DX Mark II because you can do 4K. And obviously, I mean, I would love to shoot underwater with a red, but when you're doing open ocean stuff and you need to move a lot and free dive, then the bigger the camera, the more difficult it becomes for you. And, and sometimes you need to sacrifice that top-notch high-end camera for the ability to move freely and get to your subject. And, the 1DX Mark II gives you a really, really good quality of, of video and color and everything. So for a person that's coming on these trips with you, Jorge, you know, if a person is coming and, and they don't photograph underwater, what is the best option? Do you have them, do you suggest that they rent? Because those housings are not cheap. I mean, you're looking at five, $6,000 just for the housing, are you not? Yeah, I mean, my my setup, when it was brand new, it was probably, uh, the camera body was 7,500, then the lens was probably 2,500, the housing body was like 5,500, and the dome, the glass dome was like another uh, 3,000, so all in all, it was like 15, $20,000 worth of equipment so it's it can get very very expensive and when i get friends of mine that want to go on the boat and see the great whites and they're not underwater photographers or anything i just tell them to buy a gopro and and use it and they're gonna get like decent stuff of what whatever they see with a gopro and 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 that's a way to go when you're not a professional or an an underwater photography aficionado, you know. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, they'd be if it was for great whites and they were novice at it and just had a GoPro, they'd be in the cage. Is that how that works? Yeah, you? actually, in Guadalupe Island, it's a national park, and you're not. It's against the rules to get outside of the cage. I've done it a couple of uh, the first. The first time it was a long time ago with a captain that uh, didn't mind the risk. And now he's banned from the island, his boat's banned from the island thanks to that trip. 
And then the other couple of times I did it, it was with the proper scientific permits and park permits, which are not easy to get at all. But realistically, what you're going to do if you go to Guadalupe Island is get in a cage and see the sharks. And it's a pretty amazing experience as well. Even because okay. a lot of people think that once you've been out of the cage with a great white, you never want to go back inside a cage. And that's not true. I try to get out there every year and I get in the cages and I love it. So when you charter out of San Diego with the Pelagic fleet, then for people to go to Guadalupe, you go, you would take them on this trip and how many days would that be? They'd be on the boat. How does that work? It's a five day trip. And we actually, well, we have a host hotel in San Diego, in downtown San, San Diego, and we have this uh, nice uh, coach, uh, we call it the Shark Shuttle, and we pick the guests up in San Diego, take them across the border, all the way to Ensenada, to the marina, that's where they get on the boat, then it's a 22-hour ride to get to Guadalupe, we put the cages in the water, and then it's uh, three days, we have two surface cages, one submersible cage that goes 30 feet below the surface, where you can actually see a more natural behavior of the sharks. And then it's uh, three full days of that, and then it's 22 hours back to Ensenada, back to the bus, and back to San Diego. So being submerged, though, that would that would cut down on the light significantly if you were if you're photographing with natural light. Is that an issue? Not in Guadalupe because one of the what makes Guadalupe the best place to photograph great whites underwater is like you go to places like South Africa right. and the water is freezing cold, super murky, visibility is probably six feet. Yeah. So and and they run day trips with uh, crowded cages. It's a whole different story. While in Guadalupe, you have, on an average day, a 90 feet visibility, and it's super clear water. So being 30 feet below the surface, it doesn't really affect doesn't, you as much if you're shooting with natural light. I know this is a novice question, but anybody who would go on that tour then would have to have their scuba certification, I take it, to be down in the cages. Uh, not really, because for the surface cages, you don't have to be a certified diver. Okay. Uh, you're not really diving, you're, in the, you're at the surface, you're breathing air from a hookah system. And for the submersible cage, we do require a scuba diving uh, certification. Thinking about the remote case of an accident or a situation where you have to get back to the boat, you need to know how to handle yourself with a scuba tank and stuff like that. But for the surface cages, just anybody that's older than 10 years old can go on the trip and have a great time. How many people go on the boat? What's the capacity that you would take? On the Solmar 5, it's 20 guests. And on the Vortex, which is the new high-end luxury boat, we're, it's a bigger boat and we're only going to take 14 divers. So with 20 guests then, I mean, most of them would want that experience. So you just, over those three days, just map it out. Obviously, people can't stay in the water that long, stay comfortable, I don't know. How do you budget that? When you When you get to the island, everybody wants to be on the cages. So you work out a schedule 
And the way we have it set up, you can have 10 people in the water at the same time, four people on each uh, in each uh, surface cage and two people on the submersible cage. So it's actually, you only have one full rotation to get everybody in the water. Uh, by the second day, some people already saw what they wanted to see. They're not as excited about it. And there's always room in the cages. So as long as there's room, you can just get in the cage. And if you want to spend the whole day underwater, and there are some people that, that, that actually do that, and you can do it. There's this one guy that has been on the Solmar a million times. His name is Yuan uh, uh, Rakanen. He's a great photographer. He has a Solmar 5 tattooed on one of his arms. <laughs> uh, he's a very good photographer, uh, a very good graphic designer, and he was actually able to recreate, you know, the, the great white image from the Jaws uh, poster where you can see like, just like this triangle with the mouth and the shark going up. He actually was able to recreate that image in a live photograph, and it's a it's a it's an amazing photograph. And he he managed that because he's one of those guys that goes to the island and then gets in the cage at seven in the morning, leaves the cage at six in the afternoon, and he does that every day. And if you want to get a like a really good shot and not just a shot, then that's what you have to do. And 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 he's. He's been able to get some really, really amazing shots out of being in a cage. All right. Oh. Well, I'm glad I asked because I had no idea four people could go down in a cage at once. So yeah, it wouldn't be a big issue. You'd have a lot of a lot of opportunity. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys have other things you want to talk about. I want to touch on the crocodiles just quickly because if I remember correctly, Jorge, it was. It's now developed into ecotourism there based on what you guys started. And if you could just go and highlight that a little bit behind the scenes and, and what happened there. That, that, that was one of the um, explorations sort of experiments we did. And for example, something we really wanted to do from the beginning was to develop MacVay into an ecotourism underwater photography hotspot because we knew about the potential, the potential it had. And in that case, it took us probably like eight years to get to that point. While with the crocs, we got the permits, we went there once, came back with the video footage, with the images. And after we did it, the guy that owns this uh, dive shop in Escalac, he set up a season for the crocs, put it out there. People saw our footage and then he, I don't know, I think he charges like $3,000 for like a two day croc and a little bit of scuba diving and he sold out for the next uh, three years. And that happened overnight. And I think it was, it's probably, two things came together. We came back with some amazing footage that nobody had taken before. And there was also this dive shop owner that saw the potential and made everything happen commercially really fast. But it's a, it's a really good example of, of developing 
something new that now something that every underwater photographer in the world can just call these people and book and get there and get in the water with the crocs. The footage is amazing and the images are. Has there ever been, and I have to ask this from somebody who's never been in the water with a croc, I'm not sure if I ever will be, but the images, you know, make it tempting. Has there ever been an issue where somebody has had an encounter with one, as far as you know, with this setup? Uh, no, I see. Uh, uh, and the thing is, I think it's like there's a bigger chance of having an issue there than with the sharks because of the animal's behavior. But the way they have it set up, it's always safety first. And they got the right spot where the crocs stay in the shallow. And then there's a step and that's where the divers are. And then there's a safety guy keeping the crocs on the other side. So they, they have it, uh, they have a very good setup and, and they care about safety a lot. So it's, it's, it's far-fetched to think about like an accident or something happening there. So the safety protocol is very strict. If, yeah. It would make sense for their business because if there ever was an incident, that would, you know, be a big deal. So amazing stories. Yeah. I'd say I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time just because of, you know, my desire to spend time in the water. So I greatly appreciate you coming on the show and giving us your time and being flexible with our inability to uh, get the time correct. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's okay. And seriously, guys, like right now here in Cabo with the Pelagic Safari, which is the day trips, right now we're getting a lot of mako sharks, a lot of blue sharks. The humpbacks are still in the area and we're just a short flight away. So whenever you want to uh, come over, get on the Mobula, and go see the Makos. I'll be happy to take you guys. I'm ready. Awesome. I've had enough winter. I'm wearing my Hawaiian shirt just for the theme of feeling like I'm with you down south. <laughs> I would love to have some of those experiences. Oh, man. So I hope that you've enjoyed hearing about Jorge's many adventures at sea and links to them can be found on this week's show notes at our website at wildandexposed.com. In closing, I'd like to thank our talented and hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does to bring this podcast for your listening and viewing enjoyment. I would also like to say that no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, to hit that follow or subscribe and to give us that five-star rating or the thumbs up as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed podcast. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>